0: And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Hello, I'm Pat Malone, and I'd like to welcome you to The Church in the Home, where we share the light of God's Word from our home to you. I know the truth of God's Word, and I believe what I heard, yeah, yeah, I believe what I heard. I believe what I heard so I'm standing on the word of God. It is a great day in the life of an individual when they come to God in his word, whether that's for the first time or whether they've perhaps strayed and they've come back to God in his word. And when it's not just an individual, but an entire nation that comes back to God's word, that's a day really worth celebrating. The nation of Israel had such a day, and we're going to read about that, in the book of Nehemiah. You can turn to Nehemiah chapter 1. But I'd like to give you a little bit of background, a little historical context of when this day and when these records that we'll be looking at in the book of Nehemiah occur. The book of Nehemiah is one of the historical books in the Old Testament. Again, all of the Old Testament, Jesus Christ divided it into the Law, the Prophets, and the other writings, and the other writings included those books that told the history of Israel. You can get the entire history of Israel by reading Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah, 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings are also historical books, but those books cover the same ground as what is covered in 1 and 2 Chronicles. So you could get all the history just from Chronicles, but Chronicles, as well as Samuel and Kings, ends before the captivity. So in the history of Israel... You have them coming out, becoming a nation after, you know, Moses, you know, went right before Moses leads them out of Egypt. And then you go through all this history. And during that time that Israel is a nation in that promised land, the land that God had promised them, the land that Moses had led them to. During that time, God repeatedly warns Israel to stay away from worshiping other, from other gods, these idols. That there were no gods but the true God. And he warns them again and again about idolatry. There's a lot of things that God could kind of put up with, but idolatry was not one of them. And he warned them that if they did not turn away from those other gods and back to him, that eventually they would be taken captive, and that happens. First to now a divided kingdom, a divided nation, first to Israel, and then to the nation of Judah. Israel is carried away, taken captive by the Assyrians, pretty much never to be heard of again. That's if you've heard the term, the ten lost tribes of Israel, well, that's when they became lost. The other two, which then made up the nation of Judah, were later taken captive by the Babylonians. The Babylonians then became defeated by the Persians. And the Persians then were the ones that had Judah in their land. When the Persians took over when the Persians defeated the Babylonians and now Judah, as a nation, came under their control, that first king, Cyrus, who is one of the great kings of antiquity, Cyrus the Great, under his reign, Judah was allowed to begin to return to the promised land. The captivity had been 70 years. And now Cyrus allowed them to start to go back. Their return, not everybody does return. Some choose to stay where they're at. But the return of Judah to the promised land basically is marked by three separate events, three separate returns. The first one happens right off the, the bat with, under Cyrus, And the leader, the governor of Judah, is a man by the name of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. He probably thinks your name's funny too, so. (laughs) And that happened. He led 49,897 people back to the promised land. This is under Cyrus and or Darius. And that becomes kind of a complicated business. And when they go back, they go back to rebuild the temple. The temple had been destroyed at the time of Nebuchadnezzar's carrying them away captive. They no sooner get started pretty much on rebuilding the temple than now a new leader comes in and there's an order to stop working on the temple. And so it's only a couple of years of having done some work that the work is stopped. And it goes a long time before anything else happens. After, hmm, gosh, it's something like the next, the second return is, I believe, something like 80 years later. And what leads up to that second movement is the fact that a king by the name of Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, he's in the Bible known by Ahasuerus, historically Xerxes, he married a woman by the name of Esther. Some of you know that record. And Esther becomes queen, and Esther is a Judean. And the immediate benefit of that is that now the Jewish people have favor in the court. After a while, there's an even more important benefit because she is responsible for stopping a plot to wipe out all of the Judeans that was done by an evil man in Persia. But that also sets up what is the next movement, the next return to the land because Xerxes has a son and his name is Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes the I. He being the son of Xerxes, Esther is his stepmother. So she has a real influence. And his father, now having brought the Judeans into favor, this sets it up for Artaxerxes to allow another return to the land. And that happens under Ezra, the scribe. Ezra goes back with 1,754 men 80 years after Zerubbabel's first return to the land. So he goes back, Ezra leads this group back. And when he's there, he's sent there to teach the people there about God and to how to worship God rightly. And there's some real kind of fun events that happen what leads up to that, but I don't have time to go into all that. So he leads a reform, and then that sets it up for, it's like 13 years later, Nehemiah to go to the land, but we're going to pick this up now in Nehemiah chapter 1. And that Nehemiah's going to the promised land is the third of these events of groups going back there. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, And it came to pass in the month Chislu, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the palace, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. So there's this man, Nehemiah, and he's serving in the palace. You'll see in a minute that he has the position of cupbearer, which doesn't sound like you know, that important a job, but it was. it was. It was only the most trusted people that could do that, and he was the king's own cupbearer. And it, some folks come in. Folks come in, of, of, you know, Judeans, and he asked, and they come back from being at, in Judea, in Jerusalem. And they ask him how things are going there, and how the ones that had remained in the land, some were never taken out, some were left. There was a remnant left in the land. And then you've got this other group that's returned a couple of times. So he's asking how it's going. Verse 3, And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in a great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, And the gates thereof are burned with fire. This is not what he wanted to hear. This wasn't a good report. This wasn't good news. These are people he cares about. This is a land that he cares about. This is his homeland, even if he hadn't been there. And he's asking about it, and he finds out that things are just in shambles back in Jerusalem. Verse 4. And it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept, and mourned certain days, and fasted, and prayed before the Lord God of heaven. And I said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God, that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive, and thine eyes open, that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now, day and night. For the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee, both I and my father's house have sinned. When he hears this bad news, he goes to God. He goes to God in prayer. He doesn't just feel badly. He doesn't just get negative. He doesn't just say, man, what a mess, how terrible this is. He goes to God and he prays. And in that prayer, he's praying not just for himself, but for his people. He's praying to God and and rehearsing in the ears of God how things have gotten this way in the first place. Verse 7. We have dealt very corruptly against thee and have not kept the commandments nor the statutes nor the judgments which thou commandest thy servant Moses. He said, we got ourselves in this mess because we did not listen to you. We didn't do what you said. But he also knew that God was merciful and God was gracious. And not only had God warned them that they would go in captivity, He had also promised them that there was a way back. Verse 8. Remember, I beseech thee the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, if ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But if ye turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though there were of you cast out into the uttermost part of heaven, Yet will I gather them from thence and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name thereof. That was the promise. God told them before they were ever taken captive that if they did turn their hearts back to him, that though they were scattered to the heavens, scattered to everywhere on earth, that he would gather them together and take them back. Verse 10. Now these are thy servants and thy people, whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name. And prosper, I pray thee, thy servant this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer, Nehemiah. So he prays to God for his people, and he prays for this plan that he has. His plan is to get the king who he serves to allow him to go back to the land and start to make things right there. And It's a great record. It's not one that we have time to go into, but he goes in there, and, and he, has, he has great favor with the king. And he walks in a lot of wisdom, again I can't go into all the detail, but he's allowed to go to the land so that he can go there and rebuild the walls of the city. So that he can raise up out of the literal ashes again the walls of the city and that Jerusalem can once again be protected and be strong and that his people can prosper. When he goes there, he's met with great opposition. Go to Nehemiah chapter 4. He meets opposition from the enemies all around him, from the Samaritans, from the Philistines, from all the peoples around. They all don't want to see those walls rebuilt because that would give them you know, it would prevent them from just going in whenever they wanted and doing whatever they wanted. Verse 1, chapter 4. But it came to pass that when Sanballat, he is one of the bad guys, heard that we built the wall, he was wroth, he was mad. And he took great indignation and mocked the Jews. And he spake before his brethren in the army of Samaria and said, what do these feeble Jews, what do these weak, feeble Jews think they're going to do? Will they fortify themselves? Will they make the city strong again? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end in a day? Are they going to ever get this job done? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned? It's all been destroyed. It's all been nothing but ashes. Are they going to, out of those ashes, rebuild the stone walls? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was with them, and he said, Even that which they build, if a fox go up, he shall even break down their stone wall. I guess that was real funny to him and his friends. You know, Why this? look at this wall? If a little fox went up, it would be enough to knock those walls down. They're not going to be able to accomplish anything. Verse 4, hear, O our God, for we are despised, and turn their reproach upon their own head and give them for a prey in the land of captivity. Here again, Nehemiah prays, and he prays that God would turn this around and that they'd get what they were cursing them with. Verse 6, so built we the wall, and all the wall was joined together unto the half thereof, for the people had a mind to what? Work. When people have a mind to work, and they're working heartily into the Lord, great things can get accomplished. And that was these men. They had a mind to work and a heart to serve God. And God blessed their work, and they prospered, and it was coming along great. Verse 7. But it came to pass that when Sambalot and Tobiah and the Arabians and the Ammonites... And the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were made up, and that the breaches began to be stopped; that the wall was built, and they, you know, were building, fixing the thing. That they were very wroth, and they conspired all of them together. They make a league, you know. They make a a, a pact. A, whatever. I can't think of the word. You know, this whole. An alliance, you know, their own alliance against them to come and, and stop this. And they conspired all of them together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to hinder it. Hmm. Nevertheless, we made what? Our prayer. our prayer unto our God. Again, they go to God, they pray and set a watch against them day and night because of them. They go to God in prayer, and they also do what makes sense for them to do. They set up a watch, a watch, you know, not this kind of watch. They set up a watch, you know, people on guard, watching for the enemy, and they're prepared. We'll skip down to verse 15. And it came to pass when our enemies heard that it was known unto us, this specific plot that they had come up with. If anybody left, they had all exits blocked, and they'd get them the minute they left. When they find, and, but they, Nehemiah and the boys hear about it. And when they realized that they knew about it, and God had brought their counsel to naught, that we returned all of us to the wall, every one unto his work. And it came to pass from that time forth that half of my servants wrought in the work, and the other half of them held both the spears, the shields, and the bows and the habergians, whatever kind of weapon that was, and the rulers were behind all the house of Judah. So half of the crew is working at building the wall, and the other half is just standing guard with their weapons. But even the half that's working, they're having to also defend. Verse 17, they which build it on the wall, and they that bear burdens with those that laid it Everyone with one of his hands wrought to the work and with the other hand held a weapon. For the builders, everyone had his sword girded by his side and so builded. And he that sounded the trumpet was by me. So that's how they were doing the work. They had a hammer in one hand and a sword in the other. You know, you think you got it tough some days. Because these guys were trying to kill them. They were trying to get in there and they had to be ready at any minute to defend themselves against the enemy that wanted to stop them from what they were doing. But they prospered in that work, and the wall was rebuilt. They accomplished what they set out to do. And Nehemiah was governor over Judea for 12 years. That wall was rebuilt. Sambalad and his crew, they were defeated. And then when everything was put back strong, when the city was again protected, when everything was the way that it was, they came together. And they came together to come back fully with their hearts to God. They had rebuilt the walls of the city. The temple had been rebuilt. But it wasn't enough to just have those physical places rebuilt They had to rebuild their own walk with God, their own hearts with God. And they do this on this great day of celebration as they return to God in chapter 8 of Nehemiah. Mm. Nehemiah 8, verse 1. And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street. They were that united. All of their hearts were as one, They came into the street that was before the water gate, and they spake unto Ezra. Hey, Ezra's still around, right? Ezra, he had been there 13 years earlier. He's still around. They spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. There they are, and Nehemiah has Ezra come and bring the word of God. He has them come and bring the word to teach the people. Verse 2. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding. Men and women and every kid that was old enough to, you know, take the class, whatever. (laughs) Upon the first day of the seventh month. That seventh month, that's significant. You'll see it in a minute here. And he read therein, before the street that was before the water gate, from the morning until midday, all morning long until mid-afternoon, he's reading the word of God to them. Before the men and women and those that could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive. They're paying attention. They're listening. They're right there on the edge of their seat, unto the book of the law. You know, for a lot of these people, I'm sure it was the, they had never, a lot of these people never had heard it in their life. They had heard of it. They had heard people talk about God. But 70 years they were in captivity. I doubt that everybody that was working on that wall was over 70. (laughs) I doubt that any of them were. They're hearing the word of God for the first time. They've heard about God. They've heard others say a lot about, but there He is, reading the Word, reading the Scriptures to them. What a day that was! Verse four, and Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood, which they had made for the purpose, a lectern, not a lectern, a pulpit, a platform. And beside him stood a lot of other important people. Verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people up on that pulpit. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. They they stood up to show respect for the word of God. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, amen, amen with lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. They're hearing the word, and they're bowing their heads in worship to God. And a number of people, in verse 7, caused the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. Verse 8. So they read in the book of the law of God distinctly. They read it distinctly so that they could understand what they were, people could understand what they were hearing. And gave the sense. They gave the sense. They made it live for the people. They helped them to understand what those words were and caused them to understand the reading. Just like I'm doing, they they taught the people, they read the word and they helped them to understand it, and they taught them what it meant. And Nehemiah, our great leader that's taken them there, which is the Tishrathah, and Ezra, the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people, said unto all the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. You know why they wept? Because they understood what they had done wrong, what their fathers had done wrong. They understood the reason why everything bad had gone the way it did, why they had gone into captivity. They understood that God had told them all these wonderful blessings that were theirs if they'd walk, but what would happen if they didn't? And they knew that All of this bad stuff went that way because they had not, their fathers, their nation had not followed God. But they're told, don't mourn, don't weep. Then he said unto them, verse 10, go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet. Go home and party, have a party. Have a barbecue, you know, Have something to drink, have some wine, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. You know, those that haven't got the food, send stuff to them. For this day is holy unto your Lord. Neither be sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Don't be sorry. There's no point in crying about the past. There's no past to be regretted. You can't change what's happened. Nobody in their own life can change what's happened. You can't change what's in the past for a nation. But the joy of the Lord, that was their strength. Now their hearts were to do God's word. Now they were rejoicing in the Lord and rejoicing in his word. And once again, the promises of God's word were theirs to enjoy. All the blessings were there. The land was theirs again to to provide for them. And he told them that that joy of the Lord was their strength. They had been fighting against the people that tried to stop them. You know, that has to take a toll on a person, wouldn't you think? You know, Not just doing all that work, but your life being in peril that whole time. And yet... Now with God on their side, the joy of the Lord was their strength. Look at verse 11. So the Levites stilled all the people, saying, Hold your peace, for the day is holy, neither be ye grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great mirth. You know what mirth is? Fun, you know, to have some great fun. They went and they had a party. They celebrated. It was a day worth celebrating because their hearts had come back to God. Because they had understood the words that were delivered unto them. Man, when people understand God's word, when they understand how good God is, when they understand his will in their lives, when they understand what God's done for us, and what the promises of God are. And all that is ours as we walk with God and trust in Him and rejoice in Him, when they understand that, then there is great joy, there is great happiness, great mirth, great reason to celebrate. Look at verse 13. And on the second day were gathered together the chief of the fathers of all the people, the priests and the Levites, unto Ezra the scribe, even to understand the words of the law. They so liked it, they came back for more. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths in the feast of the, what? Seventh seventh month. month. In the seventh month, there was to be a certain feast, feast or festival. One of three major feasts or festivals that were to be observed by all of God's people, all of Israel. And I'll get into more about those in a minute here. This one is referred to as the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths, or the, um, it's got a third name I'll get to, I don't remember offhand. Verse 15, and they that should publish it and proclaim it in all their cities and, and in Jerusalem, saying, Go forth unto the mount and fetch olive branches and pine branches and myrtle branches and palm branches and branches of thick trees to make booths. These little you know, tents, if we could make it, but it's these little shelters, these little huts. As it is written, So the people went forth and brought them, and made themselves booths, every one unto the roof of his house, and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the street of the water gate, and in the street of the gate of Ephraim. And all the congregation of them that were come again out of the captivity made booths. Everybody that came back to the land made these little booths. These little booths that were representative of the tabernacle. The tabernacle which when they came out of Egypt, when they were in the wilderness still, it was the tabernacle, which was a big tent, which was the forerunner to the temple. It was the same arrangement, same compartments, same different holy of holies and so forth as the temple. And it was that tabernacle in the days in the wilderness where they went to seek God. So... In remembrance of that, this feast was that they would make these little tabernacles and they'd all dwell in them for these days in remembrance of what God had done for them and how he protected them and how he took care of them that whole time that they were in the wilderness. So they did that, all the people that had returned from the captivity, and there was great, very great gladness. Verse 18. Also, day by day, from the first day unto the last day of this festival, he read in the book of the law of God, and they kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according unto the manner. So the seventh month This festival, it was very significant. This was one of these three festivals. Each one was a harvest festival. Each one of these festivals, it was required for all of Israel to come to Jerusalem at the time of these festivals to stop their busy lives and to come and to participate in these that were a remembrance of what God had done for them. But not only were each one of these festivals a time of remembering what God had done, each one of these festivals also prophesied, foretold of something else great that God would do. The first of these three festivals was the spring festival. Again, they're all Feast of Harvest. This was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Done the first month, Nisan. This also was the seventh day feast, a feast of barley, a wave offering of the first fruits on the day of the weekly Sabbath during the feast. The event that it commemorated was the exodus from Egypt, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and if you know of Passover, right, this is involved in Passover, But the future event that it was telling them about, that it was prophesying, was the resurrection of Christ as the first fruits from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Passover, who was sacrificed for us. So that feast of unleavened bread told of Christ's sacrifice. The second was the feast of weeks or feast of harvest. That one took place in the summer. And this was a during the time of the wheat harvest. It represented or remembered the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. That was the event that it was remembering and celebrating. But that Feast of Harvest, that Feast of Weeks, is also the feast known as the Feast of Pentecost and that one foretold of the giving of Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. The third feast, this one that they, in the seventh month, were celebrating here at this time, the Feast of Tabernacles, also called the Feast of Ingathering. That was the word. This one takes place, the seventh month, Tishri. And this is the final harvest of all crops of the agricultural year. It's to commemorate, to remember God's care of Israel during the 40 years in the wilderness. The final harvest, any guesses on what that one prophesies? The resurrection of the just and the unjust and the harvest at the end of the world. And at that time after the resurrection of the just and the unjust and the harvest at the end times? What's going to happen to Israel? If you know anything about the history, you know that at that time, the kingdom will be restored once and for all. God's timing is just, it makes me just breathtaking. That here they are, returning to the land. Here they are, rebuilding the walls of the city. And God's timing is that it's here in the seventh month that they finish. And on that seventh month, they celebrate that harvest festival, which will prophesy of the restoration once and for all of the kingdom completely. Isn't that something? Yeah. God bless. You can't bring me down, no word is on my mind.